John 13, 36 through 14, 10. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I follow, cannot follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. The word of the Lord. We're in a series in which we're looking at a number of statements that Jesus made in the Gospel of John that are called the I Am Statements. Jesus points to the basic needs and the core longings of our hearts, and he says, I am the one who meets that need and fulfills that longing. And this morning, we're looking at um, what's probably the most famous statement um, of, of these seven statements. It's certainly the most controversial one. Um, it's it's uh, where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Of all the longings that people have, this is probably the core longing. What is that? It's the longing for God. This is the core longing. It's probably also the most contested longing, um, at least in our culture, because in our culture nowadays, we don't really talk publicly about God so much, and a lot of people would say, good riddance to that. Um, 
but we still talk about the longing because what we do talk about are things like spirituality or transcendence or mindfulness. We use different language for it, but it's still basically the same longing. It's the longing for God. It's a universal human longing. So for instance, I was uh, talking to people a few years ago before this church started. Um, I spent a lot of time talking to people about um, their spiritual experiences. And I remember once I was talking to a young woman who was a member of uh, the medical academic community here in St. Louis. And I asked her about her own spiritual experiences. And she told me that she'd grown up in a home where her parents were traditionally religious people. They were Hindu. Um, But then she said, you know, I'm not really a religious person. I'm really more of a scientific person. But I still consider myself deeply spiritual. And I said, tell me more about that. What does it mean for you to be spiritual? She said, it means feeling like I'm connected to something bigger than myself. That is the universal human longing, to be connected to something that's bigger than just me, just self. There's nothing new about that longing. But here's what is new. Um, Nowadays, there are literally thousands of options to choose from. You know, when I was a kid, um, I'm dating myself a little bit here, but if you wanted to watch TV, there were three channels to choose from. If you wanted to watch TV, that's how many options there were. Three. Nowadays, there are, I mean, thousands of options. Have you ever gotten worn out just trying to figure out what you're going to watch on Netflix? It's overwhelming sometimes. Late modern spirituality is is exactly the same. There's thousands of options to choose from. And there's a narrative that goes along with all of those choices and options. The narrative says when it comes to spirituality, the thing that's most important is that you choose something that works for you. And you know, all that does is really push us deeper into the problem we're trying to escape. Because if we want to be connected to something that's bigger than just me, that narrative says it's about you. It's all about yourself. And that's the problem we're trying to escape. So here's the question. Are we just stuck? Or is there some help that's available to us? If we're willing to listen to him, Jesus has a lot to tell us here about who God is, um, who we are, and how we actually connect to God. Jesus makes three monster claims in this passage. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Let's look at each one of those claims in reverse order, all right? We're going to see first the life that we were made for, secondly, the truth we need, and lastly, the way to find that life, okay? The life we're made for, the truth we need, and the way we find that life. First, the life we're made for. Now, this passage, this is the night before Jesus is crucified, and um, so he's telling his disciples, in a few hours, Jesus is going to be arrested, tried, condemned, and executed. And and he's telling his disciples that he's going away, and so very naturally, they're troubled by this. So Jesus says to them twice, in fact, I am going to prepare a place for you. Now, what is Jesus talking about when he says this? Well, look at the other language that he uses to describe this. In verse 2, he says, in my father's house are many rooms. So it's not just a house. He says, it's my father's house. Now, what do we call a house where there's a father, a home? 
And there's a big difference between a house and a home. For instance, if you were to have people over to spend the night at your house, they would be your guests. Hopefully they would be welcome, unless it's extended family. Um, But that's another sermon topic. But you have these people over, but it's not their home, right? Why not? I mean, they're sleeping there. They're welcome there. Why isn't it their home? Because at the end of the day, a home is a place where you belong. Home is a place where, where you fit. Home is a place that you're made for. Jesus is making a design claim here. He's saying that we're made for God, that God is our home. That's what he's saying here. And notice that God is not just some abstract, impersonal energy force. Jesus says, my father. And by implication, your father too. Jesus is saying that we were made for intimate, loving, personal relationship with God the Father. Now, that is not what our culture says about human beings. A few weeks ago, we were talking about some of the radical shifts that have taken place in the the Western world over the last 500 years. One of them is the scientific revolution. You know, ancient people believed that God made all things for a purpose, including human beings. Modern science rejects that view and says that everything in the world, including human beings, can now be explained um, according to the laws of cause and effect. There is no purpose for anything, including people, because in order for something to have a purpose, it would need a creator that actually had a goal in mind for that person. So, for instance, um, a hammer's purpose is driving nails. That's what a hammer is for. Or a sailboat's purpose is sailing in water. That's what a sailboat is for. So here's the question. What's a human being for? The modern consensus of, of our world today is that human beings aren't for anything because there's no creator. In order to have a purpose, you need to have a creator that gave you that purpose, that created you for that purpose. Now, here's why this is so important for us. Even if you believe in God, this affects you too, and here's how. Have you ever heard people say things like, well, you just have to be true to yourself, or you just have to follow your heart, or as we say it today, you do you. Have you ever heard people say stuff like that? Of course you have. Maybe you've said things like that yourself. But why do we say things like that? I mean, those kinds of statements feel so obvious to us that we wouldn't even dream of questioning them. The reason is because for the last few hundred years, scientists and philosophers have been saying things like this. They said, look, if, if there is no purpose in the universe, if there is no purpose for human beings, then human beings are now free to determine and define their own purpose and their own meaning. That is what we would call a modern anthropology. It's this view of what human beings are really for. Modern anthropology says human beings aren't made for anything, that we have to determine our own purpose for ourselves. So in our culture, we say it's up to you to choose what's good for you. Nobody else can tell you that. You have to look inside your heart. You have to look inside yourself, and you determine what you're for. You determine what's good for you. Nobody else can tell you that. So our culture is constantly messaging us um, about this, and it's very stealthy. It's very insidious. It comes to us through our smartphones or through TV or um, ads on TV or through media, especially social media, 
or through public education or through political ideologies, but the message is that we have to define happiness for ourselves and that there is no purpose for you, for any human being, other than to be free to define your own purpose and your own meaning in life. So we're trained to believe that, that every choice we make has to be made on the basis of what is going to help me fulfill a purpose and a happiness that I define for myself. So that even if you believe in God, even if you go to church, um, we're trained to think about that in the same way that we think about any other consumer option. We're not trained to think about spiritual reality in terms of what's true. We're trained to think about it in terms of what works for me or what's most life-giving for me. It's, you know, it's just like Netflix, right? Scroll through the options. But here's what Jesus does. He comes and he blows that paradigm out of the water. Our culture says that, that you have to determine what's good for you. You have to determine what's right for you. But here's the question. How, how in the world can you possibly know what's good for you if you don't know what you're for? For instance, if you put maple syrup in the gas tank of your car, that's not good for your car. And you know it's not good for your car. Why? Because you know what a car is for. In the same way, how can you possibly know what's good for you if you don't know what you're for? Listen, you know, if, if people aren't for anything, then look, you should live however you want. But if you think it's at least possible that human beings were created for something, that, that, that human beings were created for something in the same way that a hammer is for driving nails or a sailboat is for sailing on water, then I would urge you to at least hear Jesus out on this. He's saying that you were made for God. That's what you're for. And that when you live your life in relationship with God, then you're fulfilling the design for which you were created. But if you don't center your life on God, if you're not in relationship with God, that you're actually frustrating the purpose for your life, it's like putting maple syrup in the gas tank of your life. It'll wreck you. Jesus is saying you were made for God. You were made for relationship with God. That's the life we're made for, and that's our first point. But secondly, we also see here the truth that we need. Jesus says we're made for God and that God is our home and that Jesus is going to prepare a place for us. Okay, great. But, but then Jesus says something that's absolutely extraordinary. In verse 4, he says, and you know the way to where I'm going. It's really interesting. In other words, Jesus is saying your whole life is like, You've always been searching for God, even if you don't realize it. Now, how can that be? I, um, I read a fascinating essay a few years ago in Time magazine by a woman named Susanna Schrobsdorf. Um, she describes herself as agnostic, um, but also someone who's experimented with different forms of spirituality like yoga or meditation, but none of those things ever really clicked. She still describes herself as an agnostic, and at one point she says, there's just a smallish space where faith might fit into my life. But then she says something really interesting. At the end of the article, she starts talking about her mother, who was a religious person, and about the death of her mother. And here's what she says about this. She says, my mother had the certainty that she would go home, as she called it, it was a comfort I envied as I watched her slip away a few days after Christmas. But when she was gone, it felt like a void had opened up. 
Then, as now, I longed for faith. That essential human need might just be proof that God does exist. That built-in yearning is there because there's something worth yearning for. Friends, that is a wonderful example of exactly what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying that even though we may not realize it, we're always looking for God because we're always looking for that sense of home. Home is when you say, this at last is what I was made for. Home is when you say, if I could only get this in my life, then I'd really be living. Then I'd finally be happy. Then I'd finally be living the life that I was meant for. We're always looking for that, always looking for that sense of home, but we're never finding it because we're always looking for it in things that don't have the power to give, uh, give it to us. And you know what that does to us? Look again at verse 1. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, we've just seen that Jesus is telling the disciples he's going away, so naturally they're very troubled about this. But that's not all that their trouble is about. It's more than that. Because look back at the beginning of this passage, back up in chapter 13. Jesus says, you cannot follow me now. And then Peter says, typically Peter, why can't I follow you now? Lord Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. Now, here's the thing. Peter thinks that, you know, if anyone has what it takes to seek God, serve God, love God, even sacrifice for God, Peter thinks, I'm the man. He thinks he's so devoted to God. He thinks he's sincerely seeking after God, following God. And yet, in reality, Peter is on the brink of the most spectacular failure of his life. What is that? And why? Well, we're going to find out in just a bit. But before we do that, we have to camp out here for just a moment. When you read in the Bible um, stories about people who really blow it, do you, ever, do you ever feel superior? Do you ever read these stories and think, I would never do that? Of course we do. I do. The reason is because we don't know or we forget how to read our Bibles. It's natural for us it's almost instinct for us to read our Bibles through a moralistic lens. That means that it's natural for us to read the Bible as a series of stories that are moral fables that are designed to teach us what it means to be a moral hero, what it means to be a good person. So if we see somebody in the Bible doing something good or heroic, we think, oh, the moral of the story is be like Abraham, be like Moses, be like David. The problem is, most of the people in the Bible are very often doing things that are very stupid or a lot of times things that are just downright wicked, evil, like polygamy or murder or adultery or child sacrifice. Now, if we read the Bible with a moralistic lens, then we have one of two responses that we can make when we see something like that. And one of them is this, we just reject the Bible. Because we mistakenly think that the Bible is holding up these evil behaviors for us as some kind of moral example. So very typically, our modern culture says, look, the Bible is full of this primitive, barbaric morality, and so we should just reject that. But the other response is this. Instead of rejecting the Bible, we could just look at the moral failures in there and feel superior. If we respond in either of those two ways, friends, we're missing the message of the Bible. The main message of the Bible is not moralism. That if, if we look at the Bible and read it through a moralistic lens, 
then what we're doing is we're reading every story as being all about what it means for us to be a moral hero. That's moralism. But if we read the Bible through a gospel lens, the way we're supposed to read it, then we realize that the Bible is not a bunch of stories about moral heroes. It's a story about moral failures who are desperately in need of of somebody to rescue them and that the real hero of the story is God because he's the one who's coming to rescue us. Now listen, um, is there moral instruction in the Bible? Is there guidance in the Bible about how we're supposed to live? Of course there is. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. But the main message, the primary message of the Bible is not about what we're supposed to do. That's moralism. The main message of the Bible is what God has done for us. That's the gospel. Gospel means good news about what God is doing, not, as C.S. Lewis said, good advice about how we're supposed to live. So, going back to our passage, it would be really easy to look at Peter in this passage and think, what an idiot. Be easy to look at him and feel superior to think, I would never do that. But if we do that, we're missing one of the most important truths that Jesus is trying to show us here about ourselves. When Peter says, Jesus, I will lay down my life for you, Jesus reveals the truth about Peter's heart and ours. He says, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, oh dear Peter, that before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. In other words, Jesus is saying, Peter, um, instead of laying down your life for me, you're going to throw me under the bus in order to save your own life. Friends, that is what's happening here. Because just a few hours later, when Jesus is arrested and tried, that Peter's standing right there. And he does deny Jesus. He does betray Jesus. It's the most catastrophic, devastating failure of Peter's whole life. And Jesus is telling him ahead of time that it's going to happen. No wonder Peter's heart is troubled. And, by the way, no wonder all the other disciples are troubled. Because if Peter can fail, then we all have the potential for us for the same failure. Now, why is that? Look again once more. Um, at verse 1. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. Believe also in God. What's he saying? You know, we can't know exactly what was going on in Peter's heart at that moment when he denied Jesus. We don't know exactly. I'm not Peter's psychotherapist, and I'm certainly not the Holy Spirit. We can't know why exactly um, Peter denied Jesus, but we can know this. At that moment, At that moment when he denied Jesus, something other than Jesus was more important to his heart. At that moment when he denied Jesus, something other than God was where he was really finding his sense of home. Because, friends, we were created by God and for God. And if we were created by God and for God, that means that that our hearts are calibrated for God. It's like there's a divine homing beacon inside every single one of us that's constantly driven to seek our home, to seek our heart's true home. And so we're created to do this. The problem is we don't trust God. We want to be in control of our own lives. We want that home. We want that sense of meaning and purpose and love and security and fulfillment and happiness. We want that. And even though our hearts were created to find that in God, 
Because we don't trust God, we're always looking for it in things that don't have the power to give it to us. And you know what that does? It troubles our hearts. It, that leads to troubled hearts. So, and Jesus makes this very clear. So once again, verse one, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Okay, great, but how do we do that? Jesus tells us, he says, believe in God, believe also in me. Now that word believe is a word that means, really it means trust. It's, it's a lot more than just intellectually believing something with your mind. It means where your heart is resting. It means where your heart is finding its home. Jesus basically is saying that trusting in me is the antidote for a troubled heart. And that the reasons our heart reason our hearts are troubled is because we're looking for our heart's true home in something other than Jesus, something that doesn't have the power to give it to us. And listen, we all experience that, don't we? We all do. If you make anything other than Jesus your heart's true home, trouble. You will have a troubled heart. Our hearts were created to find their true home in God. And as a result, nothing else will ever really feel like home to us. It will always fail us. So if you find your home in your own moral goodness, it's going to fail you. Or if you find your home in, in po politics, that will fail you too. Or if, if you try to find your heart's true home in money or career or success or looks or romance or the approval of other people or even something as wonderful as your family, at the end of the day, Every single one of those things will fail you because none of those things is what you're made for. None of those things is your heart's true home. You weren't made for those things. Now listen, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that we should not love those things. We should love those things. But there's a huge difference between loving something and making it your home. In fact, uh, far from loving that thing, if you make your home in that thing, you'll end up destroying it. Because what happens is if you demand that some person or place or thing be and do for you what, what only God can be or do for you, far from loving that thing, you'll actually crush it because your demands will crush it. Your expectations will crush it. And its failure to live up to your demands and your expectations will crush you. Friends, Jesus says, I am the life. That means that, that he's saying your heart, your life, you were made for relationship to find your heart's true home in me and in the Father. Jesus also says, I am the truth. And when he says that, he means truth with a capital T. He is comprehensive truth. He is all truth. But a big part of the truth that Jesus is showing us here is that we all fail to find our heart's true home in God because we're all looking for it in something other than God. And that leads to our last point. We've seen the life we're made for. We've seen the truth we need. But lastly, we need to see the way we find that life. Because here's where we're at. Here's the question. If we're created to find our home in God, but we're always looking for that home in something other than God, then here's the question. How do we actually find our way back home to God? Jesus says, I am the way. Now, what does he mean by that? You know, it's really easy, especially in our current cultural moment with thousands of designer spiritualities that are each one of them custom-made to help you find your authentic, unique way to a happier, more fulfilling life. It's really easy in this kind of cultural climate to look at Jesus and think, he's just one more self-help guru 
who's now come and said, I'm going to show you the way to God. Jesus is not saying that. He's saying, I am the way to God. I am the way, the only way to God. That's what he's saying here. This is one of the most controversial statements Jesus ever made. I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. It sounds so exclusive. So much so that, that people for years have been trying to explain it away and, and say, no, 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 Jesus, what he's really saying is, I am a way to God, or I'm here to show you uh, the way to God. But Jesus isn't saying that. And listen, I understand the motivations behind wanting to explain this statement away like that. I really do. When I was 30 years old, I was exploring what it meant to have faith in Jesus. I wasn't yet a Christian. And this was the thing that bothered me more than anything else. It was the exclusivity of Christianity. I, I said, how can Jesus be the only way to God? It really bothered me. And by the way, if you want to drill down more deeply into this particular question, we did a whole sermon on it last April as part of a series that we did called The Questions of God. And you can go on our website and listen to it. But very briefly, here's our problem. We don't like this statement that Jesus makes because, well, Jesus is making an exclusive truth claim about ultimate spiritual reality. The problem, however, is that we can't reject that exclusive truth claim without substituting another exclusive truth claim in its place. Because in our culture, you know, religious truth claims, they're a big no-no. In our culture, we say, all religions are basically teaching the same thing. Therefore, we should just recognize that any good person can find their way to God. You know what that is? That is an exclusive religious truth claim. How, how in the world could we possibly know that? The only way you could know something like that is, is if you're making all kinds of assumptions ab about ultimate spiritual reality. And listen, I understand, you know, we say things like that in our culture because we want to be tolerant, we want to be open-minded, but at the end of the day, when people say that, you know what they're really saying? They're saying, my view of spiritual reality should be privileged over yours. It's still an exclusive truth claim. Friends, there's no such thing as avoiding exclusive spiritual truth claims. We, we can camouflage it with fuzzy language, but it's still exclusive. So here's my proposition. If it's impossible to avoid resting your heart in some kind of exclusive spiritual truth claim, and it is impossible, then why not at least consider the claim that Jesus is making here? Jesus is not saying... I show you the way, or I am a way. Jesus is saying, I am the way to God. And we can see that, especially when we put this statement inside the larger context. That's why instead of just starting right at verse 1 of chapter 14, we actually included the, the very end of chapter 13, because that sets the context for this whole conversation. At the end of chapter 13, that's where Jesus really starts talking about where I'm going where I'm going. He says, you can't follow me now, where I'm going. Okay, where is Jesus going? Yes, ultimately, he's going to the Father, but how is he getting there? The cross. That's where Jesus is going. That's what he's talking about here, and that's why he says, none of you can follow me right now, because I'm going to do for you what you could never do for yourself. I'm going to make 
the way for you to get to God. I'm going to make a way for you to God through my broken body on the cross. I'm going to make the way for you to God through my death, which my life, which I'm going to lay down for you on the cross so that you can find the way, the only way to find your heart's true home in God. Now, what does that mean for our lives? Just to bring it, you know, kind of back into our daily world. What does that mean for our lives today? Well, first this. Jesus is saying that, um, that you need to learn how to trust in him. What, what does that mean? You know, if you're exploring faith in Jesus this morning, or even if you've been a Christian for many years, Jesus is saying, if you want to find freedom from a troubled heart, and, and which of us doesn't want to find freedom from our troubled hearts? Jesus is saying, if you want to be free of a troubled heart, you have to believe in me. But that means trust in me. Really what that means is, is that we shift the weight of our heart onto Jesus. So for instance, I'm a horrible skier, um, but one of the things I do know is that if you don't want to fall down, you have to turn. And that if you want to turn, you have to learn how to shift your weight. If you don't shift your weight, you're going down. Jesus is saying that, that, that trusting in me, believing me, is, is learning to shift the weight of your heart onto Jesus that the way to find freedom from a troubled heart is to shift the weight of your heart onto Jesus, that the reason we, our hearts get so troubled is because we're constantly resting our hearts on things that don't have the, that they can't possibly bear the weight that we put on them. And so we have to learn to shift the weight of our hearts onto Jesus. And part of growing as a Christian means learning how to do that on a daily, sometimes hourly basis, that when our hearts get troubled, we keep shifting our hearts, the weight of our hearts, back onto Jesus. That's the first thing. But secondly, this. Jesus doesn't just demand our personal allegiance. He demands our public allegiance. Some of you are very observant, and you may have noticed that right after Jesus says, you can't follow me now, he also says, but you will follow me afterward. What does he mean by that? He's telling his disciples that following him is going to cost them their lives because it's going to mean going public with their faith in Jesus. Remember just a bit ago I was saying that the main message of the Bible is not about what we're supposed to do, but what God has done? That's true, but we did say, look, what God has done is going to have profound implications in our lives. What God has done is going to have profound implications for what we do and for the ways that we live. Because the reason is, is because Christianity is not just some, you know, private religion about an individual personal experience of salvation. That's not what Christianity is. The gospel is public truth. Public truth about a universal event that the God of the universe entered history in a particular time, in place, through the person of Jesus Christ. It's, it's public truth, universal history, and that means it has implications for everything in the world. Politics, education, media, business, arts, science, technology, medicine, diapers, dish rags, everything. Therefore, the gospel is diametrically opposed to to, to our culture's view of the world and spiritual reality. Our culture says religion is a private thing. You should keep it to yourself. That is an exclusive truth claim about spiritual reality. 
The gospel is diametrically opposed to that because the gospel is that says spiritual reality is not a private thing. It is a profoundly public thing because the cross was a profoundly public event. And if you want to know more about what it looks like to, to be public with our faith, keep coming back because we're going to keep talking about this. But let me offer you one thought about it for today. Being public in our faith simply means we don't hide who we are. Just don't hide who you are. The more central Jesus is in your life, you have to really go out of your way to hide that about yourself. And I understand, you know, in our culture, um, there's enormous pressure not to do that. I get it. But listen, you're not going to lose your life by being public, by, by not hiding your faith in Jesus you're not going to die. Nobody's going to kill you like they did the early Christians or like what is happening to thousands and even millions of Christians all around the world that don't live in the West. The, the worst thing that will happen in our culture is, you know, maybe your reputation takes a hit. Or maybe your marketability takes a hit. Maybe people are going to say, you know, you're a fool, or, or maybe even you're a danger to society. They said the same things and much more about the first Christians, and yet the early church transformed the ancient world. Why? Because the public nature of their faith was matched by the public nature of their community. It was a community of love and generosity, of racial inclusivity, of gender inclusivity, of economic inclusivity. The world had never seen anything like that. It transformed the ancient world. Friends, the more we find our home in Jesus, the more we become like him. And the more we become like Jesus, can you imagine the kind of impact that would have on our city? Jesus says that that we were made for God, that our heart's true home is in God. That's what we're made for. Jesus is the home you're looking for. Shift the weight of your heart onto him. That means give him your, your personal allegiance. It means also give him your public allegiance. The world is filled with people who were created to find their heart's true home in God, and yet they're looking for that home in all kinds of other places. Jesus died and rose from the dead in order to create a church that would help people find their way back home to God because we found our way back home too through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Are you involved? Are you a part of what Jesus is doing in this world? He is the way, the truth, and the life. Are you following him? Let's pray.